Good morning. It's great to be back with you all, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for your ongoing faithful, uh, it's been a decade, um, support of our ministry. Uh, you were one of the very first churches when my husband and I first took off from Micronesia. Uh, you were one of the first churches that um, supported us, and I cannot tell you strongly enough how grateful we are for that. And before I forget, I do have a quarterly newsletter. If you're interested in receiving that, I do have a clipboard um, on the front pew, so feel free to sign up for that as well. So before becoming a missionary, I had a, had a private psychotherapy practice. And um, so one of my functions now while working overseas is both providing counseling um, in very remote contexts um, as well as at a Christian college that was mentioned in the, the video um, called Pacific Islands University, um, the only Christian accredited college and seminary in that region of the world. And uh, so while what I, one of the parts that I continue to do is to provide counseling there. So the story that I'm about to tell is a true story, and it's of a young woman who is referred to me by the women's dean at the college of uh, Pacific Islands University. And with the near epidemic rate of suicide in that region of the world, the dean was concerned with how distracted and detached this 19-year-old female was. And she wanted to be certain that she was not suicidal. So I've changed a few facts just to protect, in case you know someone in Micronesia. Uh, I have changed a few facts. And I've also changed her name. And we're going to give her the name Kiki. So I asked Kiki when she came to see me for counseling about her life, and she began to tell a heartbreaking story of abandonment and abuse. She was raised on an extremely remote island of about 800 people, an island with no cars, electricity, or running water. She was the youngest of eight children, and nearly immediately following her birth, her father abandoned the family and left the island. Kiki's mom never had time for her because she was so busy desperately trying to care for these eight children without any support or help from a husband. With no father around to protect her, Kiki was seen as prey by the sexual predators on the island. As her body was repeatedly abused, her mother was too overwhelmed and overworked to notice the shame and emotional withdrawal of her child. This abuse confirmed for Kiki that she must be a very bad girl. Why else would her father stick around for all the other eight kids, but right when she was born, just take off? Why else would these men do these things to her? The shame was so painful that she determined that if she were just good enough, then she could feel better, and maybe these things would stop. stop. And so she became the most stellar of athletes on her island. She was a phenomenal student, and she was the perfect child, very obedient. And yet, those things did nothing to diminish the hurt and anguish of being unwanted, unloved, and used. When the day of graduation arrived, as is the tradition in Micronesia, the father and mother will stand with the graduate. And since she had no father, as tradition would have it, the oldest uncle will stand in. So it was her uncle who was beside her when it was announced that she, because of her stellar academic performance, 
She was the recipient of a full-ride college scholarship, which is how she ended up in the office talking to me at Pacific Islands University. But all she could focus on when she got that award was the public exposure of her fatherlessness, which screamed to the world of her unwanted and unloved status, and it exposed her shame. In that moment, she knew without a doubt she was going to kill herself. When she got home that night, she found the rope that she would use. She was all ready to do it, and all of a sudden, her cousins showed up and said, we're going to spend the night. So she stashed the rope under her bed. Then on another occasion, her parents were going to a party. She takes out the rope, ties it to the rafters. And for some bizarre reason, her parents come back home. She quickly hides it again. She then went on to recite time after time after time of repeated attempts to kill herself that were always thwarted. When she, she finished conveying her painful life story, I wanted to validate her pain. And so with all of the empathy that I possessed, I mean, I just really wanted to communicate to her that it wasn't her fault, that this was horrible. And so with everything, I said to her, wow, that's a lot of pain. The abandonment of your father, your emotionally absent mother, and then the multiple sexual assaults. And in a very clear completely resolved tone, not emotional at all. And with her lifeless eyes, she had the most lifeless eyes. She looked at me as if by making that statement, I had confirmed her point. And she said, yes, that's exactly why I need to kill myself. I'm not worthy of life or of love. I was speechless. She had obviously carefully analyzed her life. This was a very rational decision. He had looked at it, looked at her experiences, and had concluded that they were proof that she was not worthy of life or love, and that the logical next step would be to relieve the world of her existence. Now, I've been doing counseling for over three decades. And I've worked with dozens of suicidal clients. But I have never had somebody just so dispassionately, so resolved and determinedly tell me that after drawing this erroneous conclusion, very rational, this is what I need to do. So I, I was so stunned, I literally didn't know what to say. And it was a horrifying experience because it was clear like she was going to do it. And so I screamed out in my head to God and said, God, help me. I don't know. What am I supposed to say to this girl? I don't know what to say. Help me, God. And in the most amazing way, my mouth opened up and words just flowed. And it was just like no pause. They just flowed out. And this sense of overwhelming Compassion and love just overtook me for this, for this girl. And I've written the words down as best as I can remember them to be. And it was something like this. God sees your pain. In Micronesia, the majority of girls are sexually abused and have deep hurt and shame, just like you. The majority of these sexually abused girls never 
tell a single soul and never have anyone to help free them from the lie that they are to blame. Unlike Micronesia, where essentially there are no counselors, there are thousands of counselors in the United States. More counselors than people you probably have on many of your islands, maybe all of them. And if you took all of those counselors, only a small percentage of them, maybe arm's width, would be Christians within this big circle. And of all those Christian counselors, only maybe a dot of my finger would be Christian professional counselors who know how or specialized in sexual abuse. And yet of all of these thousands of sexually abused girls, both in Micronesia and around the world, God has sent you a counselor. And not just any counselor, but a professional counselor who specializes in sexual abuse. And he has sent me halfway around the world to miraculously connect with you at this time and at this place, a dot in the Pacific Ocean. This is no coincidence. God not only sees your pain, but he wants you to experience his healing. The Bible says that Satan is a liar and a deceiver and that he comes to destroy. Satan has tried his best to destroy you, but God has been with you all along. He is the answer to your mystery as to why every suicide attempt you made was thwarted. He is here right now, and he comes bringing life, love, and freedom from Satan's destructive lies. And as these life-giving words just flowed out of my mouth, I watched as those dull eyes filled with light. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen and ever experienced. I will never forget what I saw in that room that day. And when it was all over, I sat in awe, reflecting on, on this, the whole event. This young woman was a nobody. I know that sounds harsh, but from a worldly perspective, that's what we would say. She came from an island that's not even a speck on the globe. She will return to her speck of an island and will do absolutely nothing that this world would consider significant. That's the way the world evaluates individuals. It is also most certainly the way we evaluate our investment. We want a good return on our investment. There was nothing in that interaction for God. From an investment point of view, Kiki would be considered a poor investment. And yet this is exactly who God chose to invest in. Each of us is so precious to him, not because of who we are or what we can do for God, but simply because he is good beyond comprehension. He's kind and he's loving. And what I saw in that room was like nothing I've ever seen. And over and over, the words kept reverberating in my head. I am the God who sees. I am the God who sees. 
And those words compelled me where I know I've read those in scripture. Where had I seen those words? When I got back, left Micronesia, came back to um, California, I took out my Bible and I began to do research on that. And I found the words in Genesis 16, which is our text this morning. Uh, you can turn there in your Bible or you can read along. I'm going to have it on the screen behind me. So whatever is best for you, feel free to do that. Before we do that, will you pray with me? God, I thank you for the power of your words. Your words bring life and light and love and freedom. God, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to each person this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you'll turn to Genesis 16, or again, you can look on the screen. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me, me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. In, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I want you to note that you'll hear me sometimes saying in the text, Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, they're the same people. It's just that they experienced a name change. I don't have enough space on there. I was so surprised to find those words, God is a God who sees that those also were connected with another, quote, nobody. This nobody was an Egyptian woman named Hagar, who was a personal servant of a rich woman. And although we're looking at Genesis 16, it's important to note 
that this story is actually rooted if you go back to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God had promised that he would make a great nation from Abraham, who was the husband of that rich woman. And then in chapter 15, God essentially reiterates that promise. And Abraham questions it at that point and says, how can a great nation come from me when I don't even have an heir? And then to rectify that problem, he thinks he comes, he comes up with this great idea, which from a worldly perspective is, he says, how about if I, since I don't have an heir, I've got this great servant, loyal guy, I will adopt him as my son and I'll use him as my heir. And that was a common practice during that time. Now, God's response is really important here. He's super clear. And he says to Abraham, no, you're not to adopt because I'm going to give you a child from your own loins. That's really important to the story. So by the time we get to chapter 16, though, you have to understand about 10 years have passed, and he still doesn't have an heir or a child. And that's an especially big deal because the promise of a child was originally given when Sarah was 75 years old. So it's already, you know, pretty extreme. Now she's 85. So it seems out of the question. And as a result of this excruciating delay and no sign of God's promise being fulfilled, and amidst incredible cultural pressure, that was the number one job of a woman during that time was to provide an heir. So the pressure on her was profound. So with all of that in mind, Sarah devises a plan to give her maidservant Hagar to Abraham as a second wife. And again, this is really important that there was nothing from a, from a uh, worldly human point of view at that time, a cultural point of view, nothing wrong with that practice. Very common. You can't have an heir. This is something you could do. You could get have your personal servant given to your husband as a wife, and then when she conceives, basically their idea was they would use Hagar as a surrogate mother. She would just be the incubator of this baby. And then Sarah and Abraham would take the baby and raise it as their child. Now they have an heir. So that was the plan. But there was one problem with this plan. And that is that it was their plan. It was not God's plan. Never once did Sarah go to God and cry out, I can't have a kid, here's this great idea, how about if I do that? Nor did Abraham go back and go, hey God, you told me I'm not supposed to adopt or do these other things that you're going to give me a child. Uh, what do you think about this idea about taking this other woman? No, there was no consulting. And so, without consulting, Abraham agrees to this. And scripture tells us in verse 2 that Abraham listened not to God's voice. It says he listened to the voice of Sarah and does, decides to make this decision. Um, I think it's safe to say that any time we feel that God is moving too slowly or denying us and we take matters into our own hands, that things don't turn out so well. I know that's true in my own life. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. So as the story progresses, Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's child, and she begins to completely diss Sarah. I mean, really disrespectful. Now, not only does Sarah suffer with infertility, but she suffers at the hands of this haughty servant. Verse 4 says, Hagar looked on her with contempt. 
She despises her. The Hebrew word for despises is more accurately translated curses. Big problem. If you think about Abraham, you might think of the verse in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And here this, this uh, servant is cursing what's part of Abraham. This story is loaded with drama. So much drama, in fact, that even the tone and the words of the narrator show a switching of allegiance as the characters switch from abusing to abused. Initially, the narrator's tone shows sympathy towards poor Sarah, barren and despised by Hagar. Then it switches, and he feels so bad for, the tone feels bad for Hagar, who's, who's Sarah is being overly harsh to. And ultimately, things get so bad for Hagar that she flees, and she heads for her own country of Egypt. Now, there are some fascinating things that transpire at this point in the biblical story. First, after fleeing what's a really unbearable situation, Hagar has probably traveled some days and has made it as far as Kadesh. And many believe this is the northeast boundary of, of her home country of Egypt. She's probably exhausted and miserable. She has stopped at a spring in the middle of nowhere in a wilderness. Perhaps she felt she could go no further. Perhaps she, like my client Kiki, had no hope and was filled with despair. What we do know with certainty is that in this obscure location, the angel of the Lord seeks her out. Although it's jumping ahead in the story, I think it's important at this point to establish the identity of the angel of the Lord before we look at what he says. So after Hagar's incredible encounter with the angel of the Lord in verse 13 states, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Hagar knew whom she had seen. Hagar identifies the angel as the God who sees me. And this implies that she met not merely a divine messenger. There's lots of messengers in scripture that we see. But this implies clearly, and you're going to see in a second, far more than that. It implies that she meets God himself. And additionally, note that the angel of the Lord speaks with authority. Here's some reasons. See on the chart on the screen? The angel speaks with authority. He promises that he will multiply Hagar's descendants. That's something only God can do. And he discerns supernaturally that she is with child. She never said that. And since the text seems to indicate that she had an encounter with God himself, and scripture is very clear that no one can see God and live, scholars have concluded that this can be none other than Christ himself 2,000 years before being born in a manger. That's pretty amazing. Isn't that cool? I think it's pretty cool. That Jesus himself would seek out Hagar, a nobody, is mind-boggling. This would have been an especially shocking thing during that time period. Um, there's three really clear reasons that people would have been horrified at this idea that God, Jesus, in the, um, comes 
to her. And that is that, number one, she's a servant. Number two, she's a woman. And number three, she's the wrong ethnicity. She's not a Hebrew. She's not part of Abraham's ethnic group. So as I look at this interaction between Hagar and God, I am amazed at the angel of the Lord, a shadow without human flesh of the Jesus to come as he so gently speaks with his headstrong servant. I, say, I see this same gentleness as Jesus interacts with the despised Samaritan woman in John 4. The fact that the Lord even entered into a conversation with either of these women is huge. And we cannot even comprehend how huge it is because of the cultural um, lenses by which we see the world and, it, and as we read, as we read. I think the easiest way for us to grasp the magnitude of this interaction is if you were to think of today's Taliban, the culture of the Taliban. So that's something we know some, something about. So you have to understand that there are so many rules, what we would consider nitpicky rules within Taliban culture. How you wear your, your uh, kebab, I think it's called, the scarf. You have a little bit of hair out. We're talking huge ramifications for that. Scary things. Potential ostracizing. Women are still stones for adultery in that culture. And a culture where women's, a woman's testimony is worth half that of a man's because, and I'm quoting here, the female mind is considered deficient. This is not terribly dissimilar to the Pharisees' culture, which was the religious culture in which Jesus was living. It was a male-dominated culture, a culture where social interactions were monitored and judged, where one's choices or ethnicity were grounds for social ostracizing or even stoning. And Jesus, again, you got to think about Taliban culture, someone in that kind of super intense culture where those rules are important. He just ignored them all. And he walks up to this loose woman. And the wrong, the, the, the uh, culture that you're not supposed to have anything to do with. This is a big deal. And I wish there was some way to, if you were there, you'd know how big it was. There's obvious parallels to those two stories, the Hagar story and the story of the way Jesus interacts with that woman at the well. Neither of those women had invited a spiritual encounter. You add that on top of it. I can understand if Jesus would stoop down to someone crying out to him, oh God, I know you're the only answer. You know, come to me. Oh no. These women weren't in any way seeking after God. And yet God sought after them. And he interacts with them, not like, 
yeah, I know you've been with five guys at least, you know, or, okay, let's have a conversation. He has so much respect and kindness and compassion in his interaction. Hagar, you have to understand, had spent at least 10 years in Abraham's godly home. She knew of his religion. She'd seen his devotion, his faithfulness, his integrity. But maybe because of her bitterness for her circumstances, she had shunned this foreign faith. There is absolutely nothing in the text that indicates that in any way was Hagar seeking after the God of the Bible. Perhaps in this scene, switching back to this scene where we are in, in uh, Genesis 16, maybe Hagar sits godless and hopeless. In spite of her unyielding heart, the text says that God saw her misery and he seeks her out. This is amazing and beautiful, a quality that we see in God over and over and over throughout Scripture. He takes the initiative. As Jesus said, he came to seek and to save the lost. I love how the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon imagines the angel's words to Hagar. That's on the screen for you. Or will be. There we go. You have not prayed. You have been willful, reckless, and at last despairing, and therefore you have not cried out unto the Lord. But your deep sorrow has cried to him. You are oppressed, and the Lord has undertaken for you. You are suffering heavily, and God, the all-pitiful, has heard your affliction. Grief has an eloquent voice when mercy is the listener. Woe has a plea which goodness cannot resist. Though sorrow and woe ought to be attended with prayer, yet even when supplication is not offered, the heart of God is moved by misery itself. Right after the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar in the wilderness, he uses her name and her station. He says, Hagar, maidservant of Sarai. So again, we see right here, he's omniscient. She hasn't disclosed who she is. He sees it. And then he turns and he asks her, where have you come from? Where are you going? Why the questions? He's omniscient, right? We just see, right there, we see it. Well, the last time I spoke here, I had preached about Adam and Eve and the consequences of sin in the garden. And right after Adam and Eve uh, ate that forbidden fruit, they ran and they hid from God. And of course, God knew where they were. And he knew exactly what they'd done because he's omniscient. Nevertheless, he seeks them out. Here we see the parallel again. He seeks them out. They're not repentant. He seeks them out. And he, what he does is he asks them a series of questions. What have you done? Is one of them. Here in chapter 16, we also see the angel of the Lord asking Hagar questions to which he already knew the answers. And as I stated then when I preached, I believe this is God's way of essentially moving a person to a reality check. As a counselor, I do the same thing. I ask a series of 
kind of non-judgmental questions. You know, tell me what you've done. What's happening? And the reason I ask those questions is because sometimes when people start to talk and answer those questions, it's the first time they realize where they are, how far they've strayed. The alcoholic doesn't start slamming a, you know, 12-pack. The alcoholic starts with one drink, and it progresses. It's a progressive. Sin is progressive. And so sometimes people have strayed and progressed so far that they're, and they're so busy trying to fill that hole in their heart that only God can fill. They fill it with things like alcohol. They fill it with pornography. They fill it with gambling. Whatever the addictions, there's a million of them, food. And they're so busy filling that that they don't realize how far they've progressed and where they are. So I think God's questions are really a reality check for Hagar. Will she really continue on to to Egypt? A pregnant woman with the status of servant going to a spiritually unenlightened, male-dominated culture? Really? Might she die of thirst or be abducted by nomadic uh, traders there in the wilderness? No surprise that when the angel of the Lord enters the world with the name Jesus, that that questioning approach continues. It's said that there's over 100 questions in the Gospels alone. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked Peter. You want to be made well? He asked the invalid in the book of John. And this one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever continues to ask us today, where are you? Where have you come from? Where are you going? What will the final outcome of that choice be? Where can this lead but to destruction? Are you ready to face eternity? In the New Testament, we see many examples of Jesus connecting with people through the asking of questions. This questioning approach reminds me of the 12 steps of the AA program, the anonymous programs, most known for AA. But there's Overeaters Anonymous, Sex Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, etc. The 12 steps are built on biblical principles. And the anonymous program totally gets the need that each person to recover, to move, to progress, to be healed, you must deal with reality. You need a reality check. And as they call it in AA, they call it taking a moral inventory. During this fourth step, a person with no holes barred assesses their life and their choices Focusing on their own weaknesses and not on anyone else's. You can only look at yourself. And that can be a scary thing to do. Who wants to have to look at all those shameful things, the embarrassment of it, the moral failings? And that is why, according to the Anonymous program, the fourth step can only be done on the foundation of the third step. And you know what the third step is? made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And you know why that's so critical? Because it's only in the presence of a safe and loving Savior that we can courageously search ourselves, knowing that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Apart from that, 
the shame is too painful. That can only be done in that safe presence of a Savior. Hagar needed a reality check, a moral inventory, and moral inventories shape our understanding of ourselves, which in turn shapes our understanding of who God is. You know, if Hagar hadn't hit rock bottom in the wilderness, I don't think she would have ever seen the Lord. And as he gives her a reality check, she not only sees God, but she sees an incredibly loving and compassionate and intimate Savior. Because our shame makes us want to hide, we tend not to face where we are. And it is therefore nearly impossible for us to move ahead if you can't face whatever it is that you need to repent of, you cannot break free until we can clearly identify where we have come from, where we are, and where we intend to go. It will be hard, if not impossible, to get out of the wilderness. Like Adam and Eve, we'll want to run and hide and cover up. And like Hagar, we'll want to run away. Our shame will discourage us from owning our stuff and it will dissuade us from being transparent before God and even before another human being for that matter. I love this analogy. Have you ever gone to the mall and you knew what store you wanted to go to but you didn't know where it was? So you need to find a directory, right? So you go to the directory and you know the store and you go, okay, there it is. But you know, you still can't get to that store unless you know one thing. What's the one thing you need to know? Where you are. The dot that says you are here. Until you identify where the you are here is, you cannot formulate a plan to get from where you are to where you need to, to be. God is omniscient. He sees where you are, but he wants you to identify where you are. He wants you to know from where you have come and to be freed from the shame of that. And for you to know where you need to go. And to have the confidence that you can get there with his help. God enables us to be transparent before him. Because he so effectively and powerfully communicates his care. It amazes me, the angel of the Lord, the way he validates Hagar's misery. That's pretty amazing. Again, it's like the perfect therapist. He doesn't diminish or discount the pain. In verse 11, he labels her experience misery. This strong-willed, proud woman was forced to live a pretty awful life for somebody who's like, who has her qualities. She has to live with this subservient life. She hated it. And it was miserable for her. But I watch amazed as God is able to quickly move a person to a place where they can be seen, like all the shame, the fullness of them. They can be seen and not feel, feel, feel condemned. Where their misery can be validated, but there's no confusion that he's condoning it. That's pretty amazing quality. God is just like that. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. 
And that's what we see in this story of Hagar. When God tells Hagar in verse 9 to return and to submit herself to Sarah, I can guarantee you those are not the words that Hagar wanted to hear. But she's responsive. The angel of the Lord also gives her the good news that she will have a son and ultimately so many offspring that they cannot be numbered. Hagar is responsive because she has had an encounter with the living God. In verse 13, she acknowledges him to be God and she says, You are God of seeing. And this is not simply an intellectual assent on her part. She's just not making an intellectual statement. It's much more than that. I'm told that in the Hebrew, it would be more accurate to translate this. You are the God who sees me. That personal pronoun is super important. You are the God who sees me. This was an incredibly intimate experience. It is one thing to know God intellectually. It's quite another thing to personally experience him. Hagar has a personal encounter with God. She says, God has seen me and I have seen God. Like my suicidal client, Hagar experiences God's tenderness, his compassion, his care in providing her with the hope of a child and a future. In his eyes, she sees her value. Her worth in his sight did not diminish when he gazed fully upon her willfulness and her rebellion. He had pursued her even into the depths of the wilderness. She was worth finding. She was worth investing in and worth disciplining. And the same is true for you this morning. But the question is, can you see that God sees you? Or, as scripture says, do you have eyes but cannot see? Where are you? Do you need a reality check? The truth is that we, like Hagar, are desperate to be seen. Each of us needs to see that God sees us wherever we are, in our pain, in our loneliness, in our suffering, in our joy. How desperately each of us needs to know that God validates our pain and that he loves us with an everlasting love. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love that is literally beyond comprehension. It does not compute in our fallen world, in our brokenness, in our life experiences, our disappointments and betrayals. We cannot even grasp this kind of love, that we have this kind of value, that you seek us out, specks on the globe, um, or as Victoria spoke this morning, we are such value in you to seek out, particularly the hurting. Thank you, God, for that. I pray for those here who may need to have a reality check, might need to, lead, to look at the progression of where they actually are. God, I pray that you would give them courage, embolden them to fully look at themselves, 
honestly, that you would bind Satan in his desire to use shame to keep us from you. Because, God, you are right there ready to remove that shame. There's no condemnation in you. And I pray by the power of your spirit that each individual would really come to know that. Do your work, God, as you do. In Jesus' name, amen.